If you're looking for success, it's in the details. Small hinges move big doors. And now your host, Karen Allen. Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of In the Details with yours truly, Karen Allen. I am here uh, and so excited about this conversation. We have Vivian James Rigney, who is an executive coach, but like, we're going to set that to the side for a second. This human is exceptional for so many reasons, but I love how he brings all of his wisdom, uh, all of his life experiences in through his profession and his passion. So Vivian, thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yes, we're going to dive into so much of your journey, but I'd like to start with the the thing that everyone will find when they Google your name, because they're going to go and they're going to say, wait, who is this person? Let me learn a little more. And I think one of the first things that will pop up is your new book, Naked at the Knife Edge, which talks about your journey uh, climbing Mount Everest. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that uh, book, the inspiration behind that book and the experience? So I climbed Everest um, some years ago, and you know most of the climbers I, I was with, they wrote a book a year and a year. Within within eighteen months, they'd written the book, and I felt that uh, I mean I want to write a book. There's a big story to be told, but I wasn't ready. And Everest for me was a, a massive event in my life, and obviously a big roller coaster journey. Uh, and I said it'll it, it'll happen it'll happen when I'm ready. And then the pandemic hit. At the moment, the pandemic hit, and I'm in New York City, everything shut down. There's this enormous sense of uh, societal vulnerability. And that was, I literally felt a bell ring in my head of it's time to write the book. This is it. This is that same feeling you had on Everest, feeling of being very exposed and vulnerable and not sure what's happening next. Um, and, uh, and I basically started writing and, and that was two years ago. And, uh, and today, happy to say it's, it was published in March. So it's up and running. And now this culminates in the Everest season, where right now people are actually on Mount Everest uh, attempting the summit. It's a two-month expedition. So they're in the middle of that now. So it's a good it's time. It's a two-month expedition? Two months to climb Everest, yeah. Massive. <laughs> <laughs> that is news to me. Okay. So I wanted to get that out there, but we need to back this story all the way up. At what point and what made you decide that you are going to take a two month expedition to climb Mount Everest? What was that moment like for you decided I'm going to do this? I heard about the seven summits, which is the highest peak on each of the seven continents. And uh, I lived in South Africa many years ago when I was in my twenties and uh, Kilimanjaro was in Africa, and I went and climbed Kilimanjaro, and I felt attitude sickness for the first time, and realized, wow, just because I tell my body, you know, it can do something, doesn't mean my body will actually do something. Or feel. So the sense of mind and body and soul, they they have to be respected in, in their parts. See, that's why I don't run a mile because my I think that I could do it, but my body would tell me, no, Karen, sit down, you cannot. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. The body is quick to respond in these, in these cases. So I ended up thinking about the seven summits, the highest peak in each of the world, each of the world's continents. And I always thought I'd do six. I wouldn't do seven because Everest was, you know, way beyond my capability, I thought. And then I did six of them. And the question in my mind was, is it me or is it the mountain? And uh, the answer of that was, it's, it's probably me. Um, so I, I met somebody on, an, uh, on the, um, when I was climbing in Antarctica, one of the seven summits, 
that was a, that's a whole different story, an incredible adventure. And he had summited Everest four times and he was organizing another expedition. And I asked him all these questions just out of wild curiosity because I wasn't going to do it, right? And the annoying thing was, I must have asked him about 100 questions and, and he answered every single question, really annoying. And, uh, and then... And then <laughs> Were you hoping that you were going to ask those questions and at some point he would just say, dude, don't do this. Maybe you're not cut out. Yeah, I hope I thought there's going to be going to be some holding this, this disconnect right of me and Everest because I said I wasn't going to do it. But he answered every question and I felt and he asked me what I had done. I told him at the mountains I climbed and he said, mm. you have the experience. You do know that, don't you? And it was an aha moment for me. Well, well maybe I do. And then I just committed to it. Uh, have enormous fear of heights. So uh, for me, I didn't look at any videos. I didn't read any books. I didn't want to know anything about Everest. I'd always figured it out on the mountain, be conscientious, trained hard, you know, you know, work it through. But Everest is exponential. So it was a real journey from just from that aspect, arriving on the mountain and uh, having to get into it for two months. Well, now, now I need to go back even further. You're afraid of heights. How does a person who's afraid of heights decide that they're going to do the seven summits? You, uh, you commit to getting over your fear of heights. And uh, I think it's innate. I think we're born with it. There are some people I know, they, they have zero fear. You take them to the tallest building, they look over the balcony, they see nothing. They see they see nothing. I see distance. I see this pull toward the ground, which is not a good feeling. Um, and on the smaller mountains, obviously, you handle it and you find ways to handle it. And it's ways to uh, not, not overcome your mind, but but make peace with your mind. Can you walk us through that a little uh, bit? Because not everybody is facing a mountain, but it absolutely, absolutely is a mountain in their life. And we all have this very yeah. same feeling of fear. It just comes from a different source. So what was something that you did internally that helped you to, what I'm hearing you say is you faced that fear, you held that fear, but you did it anyway. Right. So one particular uh, part of the journey, which is memorable and it's well-documented in the book is crossing the crevasses and to cross the crevasses. These are crevasses, maybe, I don't know, 10 feet wide, three meters wide. And they have these uh, aluminum ladders tied together with string. And you have to walk across these ladders in your boots and your gear and your crampons. It's and piece of twine on either side to help balance. It's it's shocking just to look at the thing. Um, and I I'm got shaking to first, right now. I, I got to my <laughs> as you should. And I got to my first one, and I got on, held a little piece of string, which really give you a, a tiny sense of balance. And then you step on the ladder, and then I look down, and you can't not look into the crevasse because you're looking where your feet are going. So you see this black hole with a lot of ice. And the advice is do not fall. There's no guarantees we'll be able to get you out. So you're, you're trying your best. So what happens is your inner dialogue goes nuts. And we all have inner dialogue, every single one of us. Negative inner dialogue. You know, you've hate heights. You're never good at heights. Your legs are shaking. That ladder looks dodgy. Um, that crevasse looks super deep. They'll never find you. You know, you know, you know, it's why be did you sign up for this? Why you're the I, one who I said here? yes. <laughs> all this. So all this massive inner dialogue. Now, of course, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a man who does coaching in my career. So what do I do? I put the good angel in. Good angel says, hey, you've done it before. You know, you've overcome heights before. You know, people have gone before you on this ladder. So it's probably okay, right? You have people behind you. You have a crew here, all that. And, and you would think that that makes it better. It actually makes it worse because on the one hand, you have negative inner dialogue. Then you have positive inner dialogue, bad, bad angel, angel, good angel. 
and your mind is just overwhelmed with this noise. And the one finite thing you have on Everest, which you realize really quickly, apart from air, obviously, and water, is energy, a finite amount of energy. And if you blow it, it ain't coming back until you recharge that night. So what I realized was the more this inner, this inner dialogue was this is tearing me up, uh, the more my leg, my, sh- my leg started to shake more, mm. which meant that I was putting myself at greater risk. And at that point in time, I, I um, thought of a, a decoy. And a decoy is something that is bigger and better than the noise that's in your head. And in that memory, it was a very personal memory. It was my brother who passed many years before. And the moment I thought of him, uh, all the other noise, almost like my brain immediately made a calculation of, that's just noise. This is a much better thought and respectful thought. And the moment I thought of him, I felt that peace. Mm. Interesting, isn't it? Um, and again, not to say that everyone needs to climb Everest to find that, but if, if people do meditation, you know, this mindfulness and so forth, but you can do it on a dime if you're aware of that sense of, okay, let me think of something that is far more important and precious to me. That was the memory I chose. There could be a thousand or a million other memories that other people would chose to use that's, perf- that's uh, personal to them. Mm-hmm. And that basically reduced the noise level, not to zero. Is that, is that a 10? It reduced it to maybe two. But that allowed me to breathe again. Um, my legs uh, shook less. And then one step, one step. And I just kept re- replicating that every time. Every yeah. time replicating it until such time as I didn't need to think of that decoy. It, it was working. So there are tricks that you learn along the way to tell your body, you know, you're freaking out here, but a lot of this stuff is mumbo jumbo about facts that don't, that aren't reality. Like the ladder was bad. My inner dialogue was saying it's a terrible ladder, not, not, not based on reality. So it's a good way to separate. Yes, absolutely. What you just described is something that I find fascinating. And I learned in my own experience because I was so consumed with uh, grief and stress and having gone through, through major trauma, losing my husband before I was 30, I would go through these different mind trips. I, that felt real, but I had to tell myself this isn't real. And I think it was the first time in my life where I really almost challenged that inner dialogue instead of allowing myself to be on autopilot. And so dear listener, you do not have to be in the midst of trauma and you don't have to be on Mount Everest to find this, but I love how you mentioned that the decoy gave you at least enough space from that negative energy to bring yourself into a state of composure that then allowed you to make a productive step forward. And so while, you know, we may feel this stress coming from different factors, you could be in the workplace and you're feeling it. You could be at home feeling it with your family. I wonder what decoy brings a, a, a moment of peace that allows you to ground yourself. And I think that's a little homework for the listener to, to think about, but Going back to something that you said earlier, and then you said it again here is initially the gentleman who you spoke to in Antarctica reminded you that you have enough experience, that you had the experience. Now, were you looking for any other specific experience? Because this sounds very relatable to someone in, uh, in the corporate world who maybe is looking to make a jump or a career move. And they think that they have to have 
a specific or a certain um, quality of experience before they go for that big thing, before they go for their own Mount Everest. How did you then come to terms with the fact that maybe I do have everything I need and the space between where I am and where I want to be? It sounds like you just had to jump. You had to, you had to have a little bit of faith, but again, that is something that is very hard for people to, to take that leap, right. To fill that space or jump. What, what did you do to really get yourself in position to say, you know what? I trust my experience. I trust my capabilities and I'm going to take on this mountain. Was there another shift internally that you went through that prepared you for that expedition? It's funny. I think when I chatted with him for that conversation, maybe it was a, I don't know, like an hour long conversation in Antarctica on the ice. We were, we were, we were climbing and, and it was a, it was a day off. Um, I heard myself inside say, I think you'll be okay on this one. Like, I think you have it. He was saying to me, I had enough. And I could hear that almost that little echo, very subtle echo in my mind of, well, maybe I do. And and there was obviously Antarctica. There's no distractions, <laughs> no busyness. <laughs> New York City would be hard to hear that. Um, but right there, I could hear that murmur in myself, almost like my own, my subconscious mind was saying, "You do have enough experience." And mm-hmm. and, and hearing that message when it's there, because in many cases, I think it's there if we listen to it. Now we see that in many cases in studies on on, on pay, for example, gender pay, huge discrepancy. And I'm working as an executive coach and, and, and men tend to launch into, you know, their career is in terms of promotions and pay rise and so forth. Uh, and women tend to generalizing widely, of course, I think as though they need to qualify themselves more in order to ask for that. And at the end of the day, same education, same uh, experience, same grit and determination, all of it. Uh, in many cases that women are, are more emotionally intelligent, which is better leadership qualities to begin with. And yet somebody may tap the brake and the other person may tap the accelerator. It's mm. Kind of squaring that off. How do you, how do you, how do we square it off? But uh, really listening to ourselves, I think is a big part of that. Mm. Is there a daily habit that you practice that helps you to find that inner peace? You're in New York now, so you're not always going to get the, uh, the, the silence yeah. of Antarctica. Um, but how do you, cultivate that inner peace and stillness so that you can listen to that quiet voice to make wise decisions. I live on the 46th floor of a building with a high rise here in the city. There's plenty of them. Um, and where I see where I, where my building looks out, I see the sunrise in the morning. And when I see that sunrise, obviously it doesn't happen every day where you get the joy of the sunrise, but, but I'd say most days we, we, we'd have it. It's almost that idea of resetting. Every day is a reset. And in the book, I talk about um, a sunrise on Everest where you see the curvature of the earth and wow. you, you have this immense feeling of, I'm, I'm effectively an astronaut on earth because we're so high. You know, when you're close to summit, you can see the curvature and you get this feeling of, I'm above everything. I'm above everybody, everything, everything is happening below me. So where am I? And the next question is, who am I? And this idea of the sunrise, it rises every morning. If you're a pilot, you will see it every single day of your life if you fly. And, and I think oftentimes we can forget that. 
and we just get caught up in the cloud and caught up in the busyness every day is a reset. It's, uh, it's a small thing, but it's a powerful um, feeling that goes with that. It is. I mean, and the reset allows so much more room for possibilities that are unthinkable. You spoke of that experience of seeing the curve of the, of the earth. And I remember hearing in a study, uh, they were talking about how we can change our mind and, and really through our perspective. And they said, how many times astronauts after coming back from being launched into space, come back down to earth with a different perspective, a different appreciation, because they were, you know, kind of taken out of the busyness. They could see the stillness from one picture, from one view, but when we're in it, it, it is hard to get out. It's very, very hard to get out because as you mentioned, the mental chatter, but also the busyness of life. Is there any way that you would coach someone to say, listen, I know you're a parent. I know you're an executive. I know you volunteer. I know you got a lot going on. And for someone who loves to be available for everyone, how do we bring ourselves back to that space of peace? Like the, the sunrise is beautiful, but you know what? My day starts very early when my son gets up and is like, mom, I need breakfast. <laughs> and I, I'm speaking right, right, for it, right. you know, generally speaking. So what kind of advice would you give that person who is trying to find their sunrise? Yeah, I think um, it's funny. I was talking to a client yesterday and he has a, he emailed me and he said, listen, I have a super stressful situation here and I'd like to, I'd like to cover it with you and I want your help. I want some tools and techniques. And they had a massive uh, house build project. They had challenges at work and they had a family piece that was exceptionally good. And they said, Vivian, the work piece I can handle, but this, house building piece it's stressing me and i'm pan it's pancaking this week and i'm i'm overwhelmed and i got a migraine and i'm i'm feeling awful and this is this is a terrible situation i'm in and is there what what can i do what can i do and we talked it through and talked through the challenges and and this that and the other and i just asked him, tell me, tell me, tell me what, what, what your intuition tells you what you should do. And they said, well, I should probably press the brake on this part of the building project and uh, accept this. And I said, well, what about the third leg on the stool? And he said, what do you mean? Well, the third leg of the stool is your family. He said, no, they're great. I said, yeah, tell me more about that word great. And he goes, I have an awesome wife. I have awesome kids. Yeah, but I have this problem. No, stop, 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 stop. Let's focus on that for a moment. And, you know, this, this idea of, of, of perspective, he's focusing on the work stuff and then he's focusing on this house stuff and what's going exceptionally well right in front of him. He's not, he's not connecting the dots. That's the third leg of a stool. That's the biggest leg of a stool by far. The other ones give a bit of stabilization, perhaps obviously he needs to make an income and he needs to, you know, have a, have a home to live in, you know, an ideal home. He has a home, but this is an ideal home and, and recognizing which leg of the stool is the strongest, is the biggest coming back to peace. Obviously going back to your question about every day, meditation is fabulous because it, it allows us to listen to ourselves very early. And in the case of, of, of nothingness, because ideal meditation is where you really don't think of anything, your subconscious mind 
is already um, it's already working uh, to support your day, even though you're obviously the pur purpose of meditation is to not think. Uh, the subconscious mind is acknowledging that and allowing that to be a resource for you during the day. But thinking which is the largest leg of your stool. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, in terms of loss, you know, we only we only feel it when it happens. Um, but we can feel it every day, like that sunrise. Every day there is that sense of appreciation. And sometimes we need to just come back to which is the largest leg of the stool and really almost hug on to it and appreciate that. It's a small thing. I love that. It actually reminds me of um, the decoy that you talked about, how maybe we just need to look at something different instead of listening to the loudest, most overwhelming thought, you know, just shifting our thoughts, shifting our perspective, shifting our focus, because that's what our thoughts are. They're just a focal point of our attention. So when you took a moment to focus on your brother, while you were walking over this, you know, flimsy aluminum ladder, it allowed your mind to come back into a, a peaceful state. And it sounds like it's the same thing that you did with this client is that you gave him a different place to focus, which then brought his energy down into that peaceful state, which then allows him to, you know, not feel as overwhelmed to possibly feel even more energized and confident when he does need to make those difficult decisions. And I learned that this is all about integrating our brain, integrating our brain with the, the emotions that may pop up and using logic to bring us down to a grounded space so that we could make good decisions. It's something I practice a lot, something that I, I teach my clients, and it sounds like you're doing this as well, which hopefully our listeners are hearing. This works for all humans. <laughs> this is helpful for all humans is to balance that out. But I found that at least in, in my work that it is good to challenge yourself. Is there anything that you do on a regular basis that helps you to push your growth and step outside of your comfort zone? Well, when I came down from Everest, I made a commitment to uh, stop chasing things and chasing achievement. And I think at that point, that's what I was doing too much of. It was too many goals, too many aspirations and to be more present. So I try to balance now. So I do obviously do a lot of sport and fitness, but also see uh, nature for me is a big, uh, big reserve. And that's where I get a big recharge, whether it be going hiking, whether it be, I took up scuba diving uh, after the mountains. So I thought I'd uh, go, like, I'm going to go to the top of the earth and the depths of the ocean, right? Depths of the ocean. <laughs> but really quickly, you realize the ocean is way bigger than us. So you realize you're the size of a, of a, of a pebble when you're in there. And, uh, and that's a great way to, uh, to appreciate. I, I thought now also being in a bed every night was a wonderful thought when you're in Everest, you're in a tent every night for two months, uh, you know, and on, on the ice and it's, it's a cold experience. So, but yeah, just trying to experience the present more and, and, uh, being in touch with that more. That's a, yeah, I guess a life's aspiration after Everest. Absolutely. Is there anything I have to ask? Because, you know, in the last couple of years, as we went through the pandemic, um, one thing I kept hearing a lot is this fear of the unknown and the stress of the uncertainty. And, you know, not with any disrespect, but I would kind of chuckle to think, what do you, life is always unknown. We literally never know what is going to happen in the next couple of minutes. You were quite literally facing the unknown on a daily basis on Mount Everest. So was there anything on the journey that you didn't prepare for, that you couldn't have prepared for, but that you had to face? And I would love to hear, how did you handle that? Um, there were many things. 
that I couldn't prepare for. I mean, at base camp, so think of this, we haven't even taken one step up the mountain and we're in base camp, we're training there and we're getting our gear ready and we're practicing on nearby uh, nearby ice uh, ice packs. Um, we had some roaring in the valley one day, not far from us, and we didn't know what it was. And we realized after some time that uh, when, you, when you're on at base camp, you're camping on the glacier because that's the safest place to be. Uh, in the middle of the valley, on the either side of the valley, you have these steep walls uh, where avalanches happen. So very dangerous. We're on the glacier, which itself is moving and carving its way down the valley, you know, about three feet a day, a meter a day. And this day we heard this noise and realized that they had uncovered some climbers who had fallen into the crevasse in the 1960s, uh, much higher up, obviously, oh through the Gumbo Icefall, where those crevasses were, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, they were uncovering these bodies. And uh, that was something I think which shook, which shook me, shook all of us, but it shook me. This idea that, you know, if you fall into a crevasse 50 years later, you know, your body would be hidden from the earth and then maybe be released. Uh, things like that, where you're having to just handle that moment. But Everest itself is an obstacle course. So when you're, um, when you're up on the mountain, every day is different. You have a, a live glacier that's carving down the mountain and the conditions are changing, the crevasses are changing, the ladders are changing every day. You have these people called ice doctors whose job is to move the ladders because the glacier is moving every day and you have to move the ladders. And sometimes the ladders are broken. Sometimes they fall into crevasse and they have to rescue them or rebuild. So you're living on this kind of living mountain and that feeling of, of something living I think is, and I think going back to the pandemic and the, the afterlife that we're going through right now, I think humans love predictability. Yes. <laughs> and that's what makes Everest difficult because things are not that predictable. The weather isn't predictable. You can't, how you feel isn't predictable and, and many other things. But I think right now people are looking for some sort of terra firma and, you know, and, and it's not there. And uh, at the same time, I think we're all aware that the things are changing um, and people love that they have changed, changed. drastically. Uh, people wonder, okay, the needle's gone over here, work from work from home, et cetera. Is it going to go back? How far will it go back? Will it go back all the same? And then we have the environment and we have, we just, uh, you know, there's just a lot of turmoil. And I think people like predictability way more than we think we do. Uh, we think we're all so open to change and we think we're all, but, but we are creatures of habit. And that's and, right. And making peace mm -hmm. with that, I think is, um, the things we can control and the things we cannot control and, and, and really having that clarity in your mind, I think allows a lot of pressure to, to release and going back to this, this yes. individual who had this project, there were things on his building project that he had no control over, but he's, he's fretting over it. And he's like concerned over it, waste of energy, no return. So just making that piece. That goes back to exactly what you just said, wasted energy. I mean, if you think for a moment about uh, what you're dwelling on and you think about it in the context of energy, because your thoughts and, and you giving um, life to your thoughts, that is that is taking up energy, right? And so if you think about it in that way, you notice that maybe the energy spend on this thought is pointless if it is something I'm dwelling on that is out of my control. And I remember having that revelation as well, because then it actually, it was almost like I was carrying these bags and they were really, really heavy. And I realized that they weren't mine. <laughs> and I all of a sudden put them down and my arms didn't hurt anymore. And I was like, wow, why didn't I put that down before? <laughs> 
But one of the things that, yes, one of the biggest lessons that come up with that is really learning that, accepting that, accepting the things that are out of your control and spending the energy on the things that you can control, including the thoughts and the actions and the words that you take. 100%. I think emotions can be something that gets in the way there where we have these emotional hijacks, where we feel something is so important to us or somebody said something that really frustrated us and we, 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 we take on that and might be a complete stranger and there's just, there's no, there's no need for that. And when we, so we can get hijacked a lot by our past more than we think. We think we're in control. So it's just being aware of when, when that hand comes in and tries to grab us it's not even us, mm-hmm. but it might be a habit from the past. It might be how our parents were when we have these old hijacks from conditioning, childhood, whatever. But uh, being aware of those it can be really empowering because then the bags are truly let go because it was never us to begin with. Yes. That moment happens, then it's a, it's a wonderful release. It is. It is. Well, before we wrap up, there's uh, something I've noticed you talked a lot about during our conversation and is a lot about noticing and, and being aware and then choosing, you know, a, a different route or a different path, as I like to call it in your mind. Uh, what helps you to build awareness of your internal state of being, whether it's noticing your energy, noticing your thought, because I truly believe that once we master awareness, not that it's perfect, but because you're continuously working at it and you feel strong in that space, that consciousness, it does help you to maybe to go for the job, to climb the mountain. It helps you to endure change. It helps you to be mindful of who you are and who you want to be. For me, everything in life starts with awareness. Do you have any tips or maybe something that you do that helps you to strengthen that internal muscle? I think it goes back to the meditation piece. I think that is incredibly powerful. Uh, and our subconscious mind really listens to us when we meditate and when we, we become mindful. Um, it, 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 just, it just does. Um, how do we recharge ourselves? Is it nature? Is it fitness? Is it rolling on the floor with kids? What's that point where we recharge? Uh, thinking, and by recharge, you mean fun? Uh, energy. I'm talking energy, like our energy, our, our reserve. Yes. So it could be fun. It could be rolling on the floor with kids. It could be uh, watching a you know wildly funny movie because we know that movie every time. That just gets me. It may be going out for a walk or a hike. It may be jumping on a bike or going for a run. It may be being with people who are who make us think, and that gives us energy. But being more choiceful around ways in which we know we recharge ourselves. That's a good environment for me. And um, I'm making time for those things. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And I just want to encourage anyone who maybe was like me when I started meditation, I was like, this isn't working. It's not working. I can't stop thinking. (laughs) I remember being on that journey and realizing that it wasn't necessarily the goal I should say, wasn't to necessarily stop thinking. It was to be okay with being still and being present. And when I started there, then I started to practice meditation in a different way. And it started to get to the point of what I was hearing people experience. But I, I, when you, when you couple that stillness with, as you just mentioned, activities that also bring you life and bring you good energy, that sounds like a beautiful balance. Yeah. Just one thing to add to that. I think when sometimes you want to do meditation, 
we almost feel this pushback from ourselves in not wanting to do it, making excuses not to do it, too busy, too this, too that. I think that could be the, the, the subconscious um, not wanting to change the status quo, mm. right? Um, think of it like an, a rocket getting out of the Earth's orbit. It takes big effort to get up, 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 but just the last piece to get out of the orbit. And then it cruises, right? So to break out of that. But I think there's a propensity to hold on to the status quo. And that's where some discipline really helps, right? To actually create that time and make that time. And the subconscious eventually has an aha moment of this genuinely feels, I feel better from this. Mm. Uh, but don't underestimate the power of the status quo. Yes. Even make if it's that unhealthy for us. Mm -hmm. Yes. To give yourself that time is a gift. It's a gift. Give yourself that space. Oh, yeah. Vivian, thank you so much for this lovely conversation. I have learned so much. <laughs> I'm not going to Mount Everest, I can tell you that. But I love that I have uh, an opportunity to learn from someone who did. So thank you so much. Where can people find your book? You're welcome. I thank you for the amazing questions and thoughtfulness. So yeah, very deep questions and, and really, really good questions. Smart. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, I'm so curious. Yeah. So, which is a gift. Curiosity is, wild curiosity is, I think, one of the biggest gifts of life. Just those two words go together, right? Just it's back to childhood. Yes. Uh, kids have it. We should have, we should go back to childhood more. Agreed. Um, VivianJamesRigney.com. Um, details around the book there and keynotes and so forth. The other things I do, the coaching piece as well, but uh, that would be wonderful. And it's also on audio. So we have the hardback, the ebook and audio. So if you want to hear some dulcet Irish tones, <laughs> go for the audio yeah. <laughs> enjoy that <laughs> oh it's wonderful well thank you again i appreciate all of the gems that you dropped with us i hope you have a, a wonderful uh rest of your day but more importantly i hope that everyone uh, is sending you love and much success on your continued growth and adventure thank you thanks very much take care karen this has been in the details if you like the show tell a friend for more shows like this, go to success.com slash podcast. 